Space Radio. Roger, restart. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Three, two, one. It's now time for The Space Revolution with Rick Tomlinson. Greetings, spacers. Welcome back to another episode of The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You're tuned in to iRock Space Radio right now. We're part of the iHeartRadio network. Now, tonight, today, whenever you're on this globe, you happen to be hearing this. We're going to dive into a lascivious, you can pause, go look that one up, topic, the idea of sex in space. But actually, we're going to be thinking about reproduction in space and what happens um, in, in terms of reproduction, birth, the growth of an embryo, baby, things like that, um, which interestingly is something that has not had a lot of work done on it. Our guest tonight or today is Dr. Alexander Leyendecker. He is a graduate of the Air Force Academy. I know you're thinking that's unlikely for that topic. Where did that come from? Um, and uh, an Air Force Space Operations Officer. He has been uh, done a tour in Afghanistan, uh, worked on space tactics, long, launch range activities. He's also part of an emergency um, helicopter um, rescue squad and uh, picked up a master's in public health um, at the uh, Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. He's got a PhD in human sexuality, and which has really got to be cool to roll that out in bars, Alexander. I, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but, you know, we're, we are talking about something very serious here. And, and to, to really dive into it, uh, Alex, founded the Astrosexological Research Institute, uh, which is based in Cape Canaveral. It's a not-for-profit, um, ASRI, or ASRI, as we'll refer to it in the rest of the call. He's also working with an organization called Space Born. And uh, without going too much longer into the bio, which continues, greetings, Alex. How you doing? Doing great, Rick. Good to, uh, good to be with you. Greetings from sunny Florida. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank God we're all out of that summer we had. Um, but uh, and we don't know when people are going to listen to this. So, so Alex, you know how to enter this topic, so to speak. I mean, how do we go into this? So, look, I, as you know, I wrote the preface to the original book, Sex in Space, that was published many years ago, and was apparently so scandalous that they would not allow it to be on the shelves at the JPL NASA Visitor Center, and they pulled it down. But here we are, we're about, let's say, three to five years from the point when private space travelers, private astronauts, other kinds of visitors are going to be able to go up and live for extended periods. And by that, I mean, this is relative to, you know, going up and down, sort of like with Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, but going up there and, you know, staying for a week or two weeks or something in a space facility. And you and I, I know we're going to come back to this, but, you know, we divide these people up into different kinds. You'll have people who live there, people who are visiting, things like that. So it's coming down the pike. I guess the first thing I want to ask you is how did this become a topic of interest for you, given the fact that, you know, you're a full-blown military dude and, and you know, that kind of activity? 
when did this start to wake up as an idea for you? Uh, so I would say as an idea, it probably started to come into feasibility as, as a possibility for research when I was around the time of uh, completing my master's. Uh, so as you mentioned, I, you know, I did an MPH in human sexuality uh, at the Institute when it was uh, still in operation in San Francisco. Um, the original reason I'd gotten into sex research was more geared toward uh, sort of, you know, a military science objective was looking at combining sexual sciences with military sciences, forensic sciences, uh, you know, for sort of overall more uh, mil military, we could call it military, military oriented goals. In the uh, time period uh, that all this was happening, uh, I actually got picked up to uh, go to undergraduate pilot training. Uh, and was had been struggling to uh, gather data and complete, you know, even the outline of a PhD uh, in the other area I'd been studying and realized that I had less than a year uh, before I would be uh, heading off to, uh, to pilot training for the Air Force. Uh, so facing a severe time crunch, you know, I discussed with uh, members of my PhD board and they recommended that I switch, you know, switch topics uh, because I was sort of going down this endless, uh, endless rabbit hole in the other subject area. Uh, my operational background was in space and I'd already toyed for a long time with the idea of doing a, doing a PhD, maybe doing a second PhD, uh, you know, on, on sex and space as a, as an area of interest. Managed to complete my dissertation about a month, uh, before I was sent off to pilot training in early 2016 and uh, that was that was after a very intense period of doing nothing but PhD research, writing long periods of writing and research every day, uh, conducting interviews, etc. So there was a decent amount of literature to go through, but still concise enough uh, because, as you mentioned, there hasn't been a ton of research in this area. It was still concise enough for me to get a good, comprehensive uh, view and develop a uh, develop a a thesis, uh, which I could work off of. So your thesis may have been. One of the very first ever written on the topic, I mean, conceivably. Um, uh, so in the field of uh, sexology itself, which is, you know, the study of uh, human sexuality, general human sexuality, just the, uh, the sexual sciences, collective sexual sciences, uh, it was the second. Uh, so the first was actually written by a guy uh, named Dr. Ray Noonan, who uh, completed his PhD in 1998 out of New York University. And he had uh, basically done an analysis of a combination of the space life sciences against the uh, sexual sciences uh, and sort of done a, a combination to try and provide some sort of comprehensive look. Uh, did, a, did a great, great job at it uh, for what, uh, what was available at the time. I think his dissertation is over 300 pages long, so it's definitely quite a read. Uh, but obviously, you know, in my own research, came across that and tried to build upon uh, sort of what Dr. Noonan had done for establishing a foundation. So this all begs the question. We all know about sex and sexuality. How do you define sexual sciences? That probably would clarify a lot for people as we move into this conversation. So to give a basic background of uh, sexology, it is a very, it's still a very young science uh, comparative uh, to a lot of fields. It was uh, founded in pretty much the uh, mid-1800s by a uh, dermatologist named Ivan Bloch in Germany. You know, and obviously as a dermatologist, his focus was a little bit more in the uh, realm of venereal diseases and things like that. Uh, it would later expand, you know, to include uh, 
psychology, and it started off uh, pretty Victorian, uh, sort of in its standards. Some of the base base documents in this field were very much the opposite of our understanding of sexuality as a science now, as an area of study. Uh, and then it uh, grew uh, in the following decades. You had the uh, founding of the Kinsey Institute in the uh, 1950s in the United States. Uh, that was obviously a very big step uh, when it came to American sexology. Uh, it is right now, again, the only sex research institute uh, specifically dedicated to uh, the study of sex in, in the U.S. at the moment. You also had the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, which uh, is where I gained my degrees from, uh, but they closed their doors in 2018. So right now, Kinsey is is basically it. Uh, Yvonne Block, when he founded the field, he referred to the study of sex as the general science of mankind because it sort of touches in every area uh, you know, of science that you can think of. It's not just medicine, biology. But it also dips into the social sciences, chemistry, even physics uh, to a degree. Uh, so there are many different facets of all the different disciplines that can be applied uh, throughout the field. And there's a broad spectrum that you can study in uh, when it comes to this area. So you give me a great history and you've kind of given me the upper level of it. But I, I'm guessing somebody listening might still be like, but what's it about? Uh, so... So when it comes to uh, what has been referred to as space sexology or astrosexology, uh, you know, as shown from the, uh, the title of my institution, it is an application of the sexual sciences to specifically to off-Earth environments, which is every environment other than Earth. Uh, but we base our knowledge on what we do already know, uh, because in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been coming from. The science itself uh, is rooted in biology uh, because of the reproduction aspects. Obviously, we're going to focus on that in the in the early years. The ultimate goal of this field is to be able to enable uh, humanity to spread out among the stars, to settle new celestial bodies uh, such as the moon and, and Mars and anywhere else that we eventually choose to go. Uh, having evolved, you know, all the way from a single cell organism to the complex sentient organisms that we are today, uh, all of that has occurred on the surface of this planet in a one Earth G gravity well. Uh, so there are certain variables that have always been fixed. And as we venture into space environments, those variables suddenly and you know, very radically change. Uh, so obviously, there's a lot of uh, impacts on our biology, our general physiology, not just, our, not just reproductive factors. Uh, but they become much more severe when you apply them to growing infants and children uh, and fetuses in the womb, as opposed to already matured adult astronauts. Uh, so that is the core of focus right now. Uh, but when we start talking about long-term space missions, uh, you're also going to have to consider sexual impacts on psychology of the crew, on crew dynamics, uh, things like jealousy, relationships uh, that could impact how the crew interacts with each other. Uh, and if things go wrong or bad in any way, uh, could ultimately impact the overall mission and potentially even mission success. So these are areas that do need to be studied and do need to be addressed. So in a, a broad sense, correct me if I'm wrong, then sexology, and in this case, astrosexology, is 
the study of breeding genders, well, because we have a spectrum of genders and only a few of them right now, probably going to get into some politically correct trouble here, but only a few of them are able to breed in space. And the interactions between them, both prior to, during, and as a result of those sexual interactions. In other words, the sociological, psychological, courting, whatever you want to call it, interactions of those kinds of people in, in a space environment, what actually happens during the act of, of sex in space, and what happens when sperm and egg come together, and can they, and how does that happen in a non-Earth environment, and then finally, the output of that interaction in terms of the viability of a fetus or baby that is produced as a result of those interactions. Would that be a fair summary? I would say so. Uh, from the from the reproductive aspect, uh, you, know, you mentioned genders when it comes to reproduction. I mean, gametogenesis. You need a uh, you know a male gamete and a female gamete. Uh, they need to be able to, male gamete needs to be able to find the female gamete and bind uh, to create a fertilized zygote. And then that zygote needs to be able to travel through the female's re reproductive system and implant in the uterine wall, develop as an embryo, grow as a fetus. Uh, and this is all prenatal. Uh, and, you know, there's also postnatal considerations when it comes to uh, things like birth, uh, taking, you know, care of a a baby in the in the immediate uh, term after the birth and growth in those uh, those weeks that follow, uh, not just weeks but but months. As we're all well aware, people tend to what use the old uh, euphemism of uh, kids grow like weeds. Uh, so you have very very rapid rates of cell division in uh, you know in infants and toddlers, children. Uh, so there are a lot of considerations for the impacts of microgravity and radiation on those, you know, growing little humans. So given that we know the impacts of, uh, of radiation microgravity are pretty detrimental in fully grown adults, there's a lot more that we need to learn before and ethically bring babies and children into space or try and have, have babies in those environments. Perfect. So we're going to wrap up this section, having kind of cleared the field out as to what it is or laid out the field, what it is we're going to be talking about here. And I know there's a couple of people sitting out there, but like uh, going, you know, Hey, what about test tubes? You know, one step at a time sort of. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I think a lot of this is going to, going to apply in, in either case. So we're going to be right back in a minute. You are listening to IROC space radio. This is the space revolution. Our guest today is Dr. Alexander Leyendecker. And we are talking about sex in space all right spacers welcome back to the space revolution i'm rick thomas your host you're listening to i rock space radio we're part of the iheart radio network and our guest today is dr alexander leyendecker and we are talking about sex in space or probably more correctly all of those things that surround sex from human interactions to can uh, can reproduction occur beyond the earth to the growth of early you know, a baby? So, Alex, um, 
First of all, too, I think I should have mentioned early on that you're a part of a group called Spaceborn. Um, can you tell us briefly what Spaceborn is looking into? Because that'll help drive us into the next section here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, I've been in, uh, in my role in, an advisor to uh, Spaceborn for uh, roughly the last five years. Uh, so Spaceborn United, which is a uh, Netherlands-based uh, startup. Uh, they are a biotech startup that focuses on IVF technologies as applied to space, or as they call it, artists, uh, assisted reproductive technology in space. Uh, so they are uh, seeking to fill in a lot of the data gaps uh, when it comes to reproductive biology using sort of your traditional microfluidic disk, uh, disk experiment, uh, sending uh, mice embryos. Initially, it'll be mice embryos. Uh, up into space environments uh, and testing the different phases of reproduction. Uh, so I believe there, um, if we are on track, first uh, test launch should be this coming year. Uh, so that'll be, you know, there will not be an experiment and an actual experiment on board uh, that rocket, but, you know, a, a dummy capsule uh, that we place in the rocket uh, just to test the feasibility there. Uh, and then I believe the follow-on, we're looking at uh, potentially 2025 for the first actual mission going up artist. So that, that to me, always begs the question, and, and I get asked it now and then, well, we've been going to space since 1969. Nobody's looked at this in any depth. We're just now starting to talk about mice embryos. I have my opinions on this. What are yours as to why it's taking so long? Uh, so, yeah, excellent question. Um, and to uh, to expand a little bit on the information you already gave. So there have been uh, experiments around reproduction that have been sponsored by the National Space Agency, so Roscosmos. Uh, back under the uh, Soviet Union, they actually put up the uh, first biosat that studied rodent uh, rodent mating and reproduction in 1979. It was uh, Cosmos 1129 was the... Uh, was the mission? Uh, they, uh, you know, put up another one in the '80s uh, in the, I believe it was the Cosmos 1500 series. Uh, NASA themselves have also put up uh, rodent experiments uh, in the mid '90s. A series of experiments went up, were co-sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, uh, and studied uh, live rat pups and mice. Um, which the results of those were uh, concerning. The, uh, the detrimental effects that we saw on the pups and especially fatality rates when it came to uh, things like post, you know, postnatal periods. With regard to why... Hang on, I'm going to stop you. Been, I'm going to stop yeah. you because you just like dropped that one. You said they were concerning. What was oh, concerning <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll, I can get into that if, if you would like. Um, just a little so, bit and then we can move on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the... Uh, the missions that uh, though that the rodent one, two, and three uh, went up on were shuttle missions, and I want to say it was 1994, 96, uh, and 90, 1997. Those missions brought uh, groups of uh, rat pups into orbit, you know, and or uh, pregnant uh, pregnant rat mothers, and a a uh, example of statistic I like to go back to uh, often uh, when I do presentations on this topic uh, to express the uh, the concerns and the dangers here is that uh, you had three separate uh, rat pup groups 
And the mortality rate in the youngest group uh, for the uh, period that they uh, they were brought into space, mortality rate among the five-day-old pups was 90%. Uh, so 90% of them died. Uh, among eight-day-old pups, it was 10%. So there's a very significant three-day gap there in terms of uh, healthy development. Uh, and the 14-day-old pups all did survive uh, in that particular experiment. However, all the pup, all the pups that uh, did survive in comparison to the controls were significantly underweight. Even the 14-day-olds, I think, had uh, uh, neurovestibular issues. They were 25% uh, had 25% less mass, uh, the, the weight that they, uh, that they carried, uh, when they were, when they were growing. So a lot of concerns, you know, came out just from that small handful of, uh, handful of missions. There was another that was put up. I believe that that mission series was continuing. There was another that was put up, uh, but unfortunately it was on space shuttle Columbia and, uh, those, those mice perished, uh, you know, when the uh, when the shuttle broke up in the atmosphere. Uh, and to my knowledge, that was the last NASA experiment that had to do, uh, at least in at least in recent years, uh, NASA sponsored experiment that had to do with uh, with reproduction. Although there have been uh, some co sponsored experiments done with uh, the Japanese space agency, uh, you know, studying gametes, sperm, and, uh, and things of that nature. With regard to why and not a lot of research has been done in this area. I think from a cultural cultural perspective, sex has always been a very taboo subject at NASA. And that is a fallout effect from the fact that, you know, NASA took its roots from pretty conservative elements of, you know, military test pilots and, and engineers back in the, in the sixties when we we're fighting the, the quote unquote godless communists of the Soviet Union. Uh, so there has always been, until recent years, that are, there had always been a pretty uh, conservative, conservative nature of NASA. It's a, you know, I've said this before, and uh, plenty of other people in the field have said this. It's a, it's a organization of by and for engineers that engineers vehicles. That is their, that is their prerogative. They are engineering the vehicles to get us into space, uh, and the science, the space life science, uh, sort of piggybacks on on the rest of it. We do enough space life science to try and keep the astronauts healthy. But a lot of the methods that we have used thus far are sort of a band-aid as opposed to tackling the, the real issues. And space life sciences budgets have been shrinking at NASA uh, over the last you know, decades. Um, reproduction and sex in general has tended to always get NASA folks in trouble whenever it has, uh, has been brought up. And we have to remember that NASA answers to Congress and Congress has certain elements within it that are you know, firebrand levels of uh, conservatism uh, that take the, take the view that all sex is dirty and evil and uh, they have kind of a short-sighted uh, take on everything, especially in this area, not realizing that if we want to be able to settle Mars, settle the moon, and expand out into the rest of the cosmos, this is something that we're going to have to figure out. Uh, because if you can't have babies in your new settlements, uh, safely, successfully, the, and the old-fashioned way, because the old-fashioned way is still going to be happening, then a settlement is kind of a moot point. You die out after one generation, uh, considering if it is an Earth-independent settlement. So there's so much in what you just said. Oh, my God. Um, Sorry, I have, like, so many all, different all shows. All over the place sometimes. 
Yeah, we, there's so much to talk about regarding the conservatives and this. Of course, the conservatives would be the ones who would be often accused of being the most imperialistic and colonial, who would want to expand the domain of humanity. Which is ironic Therefore, when you think about it. Yeah, it is ironic. So they're shooting themselves in the whatever. That's one part. Um, the NASA right stuff thing, totally get it. Uh, something you and I had talked about with some of your compatriots at Spaceborne was also the fact that it isn't in NASA's mandate to worry about settlement. Their whole thing has been camping trips um, and, and still is, no matter what their PR is, no matter what the stuff in the fancy videos and animations is all about, their whole job is to go out there and come back. There is no multi-year you're going there to live there and build a family agenda within NASA. So that's out of their purview until it's put in by those same very, very same Congress people uh, that we're talking about. Going all the way back to the beginning of your question, it was interesting to me that you were talking about these different ages of, 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 of rat pups that were sent up. Um, and they were sent up at those ages. And uh, I'm curious that, and, and this is, we won't get way down in the weeds on this, that maybe the very, very, very young ones didn't know how to find their way in zero G to where they need to feed um, on their mother's breasts. And, you know, the older ones maybe already knew that. And that, that's, this is a layman. I am the poster child of layman. Uh, but it, it's those kinds of things that we have to, what I'm trying to get at is every one of these experiments, as science does, indicates a bunch of new questions, each of which has to be peeled away, or what scientists call variables, have to be peeled away with controls for those variables so that we can get to why it was the young ones didn't make it, why it was they had physiological challenges when they come back at different ages. And we don't know any of that because there's been so little research. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say that's a fair assessment. Uh, we, to quote uh, one of the lead researchers in this area, who was uh, she was a, a NASA researcher, had been quoted as saying, we know nothing. So we know just enough to know that there are a lot of issues that we are going to be running into. Uh, I think we know enough to recognize that as of right now, without mitigation procedures in place, we cannot reproduce in space, not safely. Right now, it presents a danger, uh, you know, not only to the life of the baby, but also potentially the life of the mother. Uh, and that is, you know, that's a concern that uh, colleagues of mine and I expressed in, in the recent uh, paper that we were discussing with you in that sidebar that you were just, just talking about. There are massive, massive data gaps. Those data gaps have to be filled. And uh, building out the experiments and doing mission design for getting those data gaps filled, that is what ASRI and Spaceborne are about right now. Great. We're going to come back in a minute and we're going to talk about that because we have a bunch of people, myself included, and other people offering rides and stuff like that who are saying, let's go, right? So we're going to come right back. All right, Spacers, you are listening to The Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tumlins and our guest is Alexander Lyon-Decker. We're talking about sex and reproduction in space. And you're listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. Hey there, spacers. Welcome back to the Space Revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. You are listening to iRock Space Radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. 
We're talking to Alexander Leyendecker, a face sexologist and um, very somber mind in terms of um, looking at this topic. The bottom line that we're dealing with right now is, as you've heard me say on this show, you know, publicly and, and in writings and things like that, is we are maybe five years, three to five years, let's say, as far as development cycles go, to being a, at the point where civilians, non-government employees, are going to be heading out into space for extremely long-term stays, if not, let's say by 2030, heading out to try and settle places like Mars or, or live for a long time uh, on places like the moon. In the meantime, there are going to be people going up to orbiting space facilities. And yes, whether they're co-workers or they're going up there to go on a visit, to have fun, to hang out, to be the T word, as I say, the tourist word. Oh God, I can't believe I said that. They're going to be doing some stuff in zero G that involves Velcro, rubber bands and padded rooms. And uh, this is the serious side of that. So Alex, what you are saying is from a dry scientific perspective we don't know what's going to happen and it doesn't look good uh certainly not on the physiological side the you know bioreproductive uh issues you know which we've already discussed a little bit there are inherent dangers that come along with any sort of you know copulation opportunity of which there will be a lot in the uh in the future of uh commercial space uh, as you mentioned there's you mentioned the, the dirty t word uh, there is a uh, inflection point that we are approaching where the visitors uh, going up into space are no longer just going to be professional agency and private, you know, commercial uh, company, private astronauts. Uh, you're now going to be able to have average everyday people uh, that fall within a reasonable price range where you can purchase a ticket and you can go and, you know, take a suborbital flight for a day or two, stay at a space hotel. In the early years, it'll be quite an expensive endeavor, but still within reach of, you know, people making six figures, which puts it within reach of tens of millions of people on the planet. Uh, so I, I think we'll, we'll definitely have a uh, ready population uh, that is prepared to, to go into space and willing to accept the risks of going into space. And as comes along with that, people of different motivations are going to be going for for different reasons. Uh, so folks not going for professional reasons or simply because uh, they have dreamt and trained their whole lives to go into space. Uh, now people are going to be going for vacations. And you know one of the number one things that people do on vacations, one of the number one things that people do in hotels uh, is kick back, relax. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of sex happens in those places and it would be foolish to assume that uh, it's not going to happen in space hotels or, uh, general space environments. Uh, so that considered, we now have a surging probability uh, for, you know, incidences of copulation that could result in reproduction, um, could result in fertilization, and as we discussed, create a dangerous situation, especially depending on how long people are on these, you know, space vacations for. Uh, so if it's anything longer than two weeks, then you're potentially looking at, uh, you know, very dangerous potential for ectopic pregnancies. Uh, if the, you know, if a fertilized zygote 
you know, in plants in the fallopian tubes as opposed to the uterine wall because it was not able to navigate correctly in microgravity. There's a lot of unknowns uh, that currently exist that we don't want to take a risk on, uh, but those risks are rapidly approaching. They really are. And on the on the sexual side, I have to admit, I've been thinking about this a long time. That's why I did the the preface to, uh, I think it's Laura Woodmancy's uh, book. I think that was 2005, right? It's published. Pardon? I think that was 2005. It was published. So that's something like that. I'm I'm holding up my hand. I'm admitting it. I bought Cosmosutra.com and Cosmosutra.com. I've never even thought of that as as a thing, but that. (laughs) Well, it was one of the ultimate uh, adult coffee table books, and and I thought, let's figure out all the positions for all of these things. But we're we're really more focused on the serious the results of that party, you know, than than the actual party itself here today. And uh, we may come back and you know bring your associate uh, Shauna and Dr. Shauna yep. Pandya, and and have some fun with the entire other part of the topic. But um, I think we're in a serious vein here, you know. Um, but you're right. And, you know, what you just said, you know, the the um, the ectopic, you know, having this is a problem that happens on the earth. Yep. Right. That post, I'll, I'll let you explain it again. But boom, right there, man, just blew my head. Right. That that's an obvious, easy to anticipate possibility. Right. That the fertilized egg doesn't find its way down to where it needs to go down. I said down. Right. So. Yeah. Any direction of space, right? <laughs> right. But I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's, that's, that's how it goes. Right. I mean, we don't know, I guess we can presume that gravity is a part of how that happens. I'll let you take it. Uh, so from what we have been able to tell, yes, gravity is important to all the stages of, of reproduction. How important we're still trying to determine, uh, Azri is, is currently developing a scale uh, for how much gravity are you really going to need to safely and successfully complete each stage of reproduction, all the way from uh, gametogenesis down to uh, you know down to delivery? Because when it comes to the uh, second and third trimester, there I would say is enough evidence uh, to suggest that uh, gravity does play a significant role um, in you know how the uh, in how the fetus develops and also how the uh, baby is going to be positioned uh, for for delivery. Uh, gravity does play a role in that. Uh, there were, you know, other uh, rat experiments that uh, determined the um, the uterine muscles of the mother had actually grown significantly weaker after exposure to microgravity, which made her contractions a lot weaker. Uh, because, as you know, we lose we lose muscle mass in microgravity. Uh, her and uh, you know there were there were numerous uh, subjects here, but uh, saying her just to give one example, weaker uterine contractions, uh, which led to a much more difficult delivery of the pups, uh, and also part of uh, contractions, uh, part of the effects of contractions uh, during the process of birth and delivery is that the pressure uh, helps deliver sort of a shock to the baby's physiological systems and get them working on their own. So the baby is able to start breathing on their own uh, and, and, you know, uh, separate, uh, separate from the, uh, 
from the uterus. One of the reasons why if a baby comes out and is not breathing, you see the doctor give baby a, a slap on the back. Um, so it delivers sort of a shock to the uh, shock to the system. Um, and then, you know, baby starts crying and breathing, uh, which is exactly what, uh, what we're going for. Uh, so simply the fact that uh, issues like that exist, uh, you can see that the systems of the mother as the baby is relying on them are affected and then the baby systems themselves. Uh, so when you want to think about things like neurovestibular development, uh, cytoskeletal development, how the cells are, are stacking, forming, how the skeleton is forming, uh, how muscle mass is forming and the organs, ocular, uh, ocular systems with the eyes, there's a whole host of issues that, again, we already see defects um, and, and uh, negative impacts with adult astronauts. If you want to take those same effects, you know, a 20% potential bone mass loss or muscle mass loss and compound that over time on a, you know, with a growing fetus or a growing infant, think about trying to, I mean, you know, this is a greatly oversimplified uh, comparison, but uh, imagine trying to build a house on mud and the bricks just keep falling over, but you just keep piling bricks on top. You're not going to have a, a strong foundation. You're not going to have a, a well-built house at the end. Um, again, gross oversimplification, but um, that's a uh, Kind of, you know, one of the ways that I, I see it in the back of my mind. Um, so, yeah, gravity and uh, the levels of gravity, or as has, has been described by other folks in this field and by one of my mentors, are Dr. Jim Logan, who you know well, gravity prescription is something that we're going to have to determine. What level of gravity gives us an ethically and medically acceptable uh, growth model for human, human babies off-world? Uh, is Mars gravity high enough to, you know, to successfully raise children? Because if it's not, then we've potentially lost the, you know, the surface of Mars, at least. We lost the surface of Mars as a long-term settlement uh, location. And not only that, we lost the moon. So we can't raise children on that surface or the surface of the moon. Uh, and we would have to default to, you know, some kind of O'Neillian structure, perhaps in orbit around the planet where children would have to grow to full maturity, grow, you know, until you are done growing as a adult. So for males, uh, I think the age is uh, around 23 years old before you can go down to the surface and work. So there's engineering solutions that can help us sidestep some of these issues, uh, you know, by creating artificial gravity or, you know, simulating artificial gravity. Uh, and then obviously shielding for radiation, uh, we do know that Earth environments work. We have all the data of humanity's entire existence uh, that uh, to fall back on there. So Earth environments are our green line. Um, and how far away from that line can we get uh, before the lines start to turn amber and then red uh, is kind of how we're, uh, we're approaching the topic. So you are, in a way, alerting us right now. And our friends who are looking, what is it? We have five private base facilities that have funding over a hundred million dollars, which kind of makes them real, right? They may fall up. They may not, you know, happen for other business reasons, but that's a lot of money. These are not sketches or something. These are real companies that are trying to build these space facilities. They should be all over you guys right now. They should be begging you, funding you with millions of dollars to find these things 
Because there, we're talking about, and what you're saying infers that the very first times that human beings go up to these facilities and conceive and stay for any length of time and then come back down to the earth, that the babies they have could be, I'm not sure the perfect term, malformed or have birth defects, major what we would call birth defects. And therein lies society saying no and shutting the entire thing down or lawsuits that shut the entire thing down or just pure morality that says we can't do this and we stop. There is no data out there because our space agencies have been lax at doing this. It wasn't their mandate. We've had the conservative mindset. All of these things have led to a moment where we're about to have the capability and we don't know a damn thing about the results of what it is we are about to do. This is scary stuff, really, right? I mean, we started out the show with this, hey, sex and space kind of thing. What, you, what we've done here is we've walked into a place of alarm where our entrepreneurs, our space agencies need to hear this alert and engage now in supporting the kind of research so that we know these things. Dr. O'Neill, as you know, my old boss, said that he believed rotating space facilities that provided one gravity using the spin were the, uh, were the place for human beings to be. And, you know, it's funny because anybody who's ever watched The Expanse, how do you torture a belter who's grown up in zero G? Yeah. You, know, you make them stand up on the earth, right? Um, so we may end up with these species, Homo marsialis, Homo spatialis, Homo lunaris, that are completely different species who will never, ever be able to come back. But we don't even know that because the development of organs, all the other stuff inside of them may not happen correctly. So we're going to come back in, in a minute. Um, and now that we're thoroughly depressed and I'll try to cheer you back up on the other side, <laughs> see if we can cheer things back up. Right. Exactly. All right, spacers. Thanks for listening to the space revolution. We're going to take a break. My name is Rick Tomlinson. This is IROC space radio, part of the iHeartRadio network. We will be right back. Hey there spacers. Welcome back to the space revolution. My name is Rick Tomlinson. Our guest is Dr. Alexander Lyon-Decker. We started out talking about sex in space. Then we got into reproduction and I'm depressed. I am. I, as I was telling you during the break, Alex, I, um, this is one of those things you think about and you think, oh, it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It is not going to be okay. Our billionaire friends, our, our space facility friends, none of them, NASA, ESA, none of them are funding research into this area. And it is going to blow up in our faces. Am I right? Uh, I would make uh, a caveat to to what you just said. As far as none of them are are funding or researching it, there there is research that you know has been done, is being done. It is not happening at nearly the rate it needs to uh, in order to garner us enough data so that we have the facts we need before we are presented with actual dangerous situations. So, you know, as we were discussing earlier, quote unquote, space tourists or space adventures, whatever you would like to call them, private, private astronauts are going to have very, very different motivations for why they go into space. For the first time, folks are going to be going up for leisure purposes. 
so they're going to have time to themselves. They're going to have staterooms on space yachts and, and, and other things like that. So you can expect that, yes, sexual activity is absolutely going to happen, and it's going to happen soon, uh, probably within, uh, I think you give the window of the next five years. I think Starship is probably going to be fully operational within the next three years or so, uh, if not sooner. And I think that uh, I've read somewhere that once Starship becomes fully operational, we're within a year or two of launch costs falling below $100 a kilogram. Uh, which puts space in reach of tens of millions of people uh, for for a mm-hmm. fiscally reasonable price. Uh, so you can expect that, yes, we're going to have the masses flood into space. It will be true mass access to space for the first time. Uh, so again, that event horizon is rapidly, rapidly approaching, uh, and we still don't know nearly as much as we need to, uh, nor are we on a track to know as much as we need to uh, by the time that happens. And we are in the age of likes and TikTok and all of these, look how cool I am that's cooler than someone else. So you know, absolutely know, that within the first whatever period of time, somebody's going to go up there to have sex immediately. And- so I, I will not uh, reveal the, you know, I won't reveal names of companies or anything, but I know for a fact that commercial space companies have been approached by individuals offering to, you know, buy out entire craft solely for the purpose of being able to, you know, have a romantic engagement. So if people are willing to do that and spend obscene dollars for buying an entire, you know, buying out an entire spacecraft, yeah, you can, you can tell it's uh, very much at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and people that are going to, be wanting to go into space as part of the first wave of everyday average people going, they're going to be looking to break certain barriers and break records. You always have that crowd as a part of, uh, as a part of any group, uh, when it comes to any kind of adventurism, there are people that are going to specifically go into space for that reason. So yes, it's, it's going to happen. Humans are humans and we're not going to be able to really, uh, stop them, especially if they have private quarters. Well, I so and I want to I want to differentiate going up to space to have sex, fine. But within that set is going to be the first couple, the first whatever who want to conceive in space and get that. You know, they want that Guinness Book of World Records marker. And those are the folks that right now uh, I'm I and my colleagues are most concerned about because, yes, folks are going to be aiming to be the first ones to ever conceive a baby in space. Uh, in fact, when Spaceborn started off uh, about six years ago, uh, they were flooded with offers of people because they had come out and said, hey, we want to have the first baby in space by 2024. Very lofty goal. And, uh, you know, we had a, a number of conversations about uh, the dangers and things. And so they have pushed, obviously pushed their timelines. Uh, but this was, you know, in their original press announcement, they had mentioned 2024 with uh, <laughs> with that being only, uh, you know, a year from now. So that was roughly seven years from the, from the time. I didn't think that it was very feasible for being able to gain all the data that we would need to go through it, analyze it, uh, go through multiple animal trials and eventually eventually, uh, you know, be ready to, to birth a baby in space. And by all indicators, it wasn't. You know, it, it was not a safe, uh, safe endeavor anyway. Yeah. So we, we don't, we just don't have the data. 
man. It's not that, I mean, I never thought I would be in the position of saying that you you should ban something like this, but it's almost as if we should ban it until we know, not the sex part, yeah. but the reproduction part. So yeah, it, w- it would absolutely, you know, history has proven us a thousand, a thousand times that uh, trying to ban sex and humans from engaging in, in it is, is a fool's errand. You know, you can ask a lot of churches about that. We don't, my colleagues and I, something that we very much wanted to stress, and we stressed it in, in a call, you know, the other day that, uh, that we were on with you, we're not looking to ban sexual interaction in space. I'm very against banning, banning of sex, uh, but Absolutely. there are, yeah, me too. you know, these, these inherent danger, in dangers that people need to be aware about when it comes to re- reproduction. The fact that you participate in this act could lead to a medical danger uh, and potentially a danger that even threatens the lives of the, uh, you know, the rest of the crew, uh, resources, uh, things, things of that nature. When it comes to cislunar space and the cislunar economy, uh, at least you are still within, within reachable distance. Uh, if you're on your way to Mars, uh, that certainly is going to impact the entire mission uh, because you can't turn the ship around uh, and, and, you know, I know we're getting more into, uh, kind of in thinking more into the future settlement and things like that, uh, with this example. But, uh, when you're on your, on your way to Mars, you won't be able to turn around at that point. Uh, if you discover that a woman has become pregnant, uh, and now you're faced with the dilemma of, uh, are we able to, you know, is she going to wish to carry it to term? Is she going to, uh, have to proceed with a, with a medical abortion for her own safety? So many unanswered questions, uh, that again, we need to we need to uh, get the answers to so that we can make the most ethical decisions possible in those very very trying circumstances. With short term space visitors, you are looking at uh, things like informed consent. The best that we can do, as with all space travel, when private astronauts go into space, they have to sign a whole bunch of waivers uh, regarding safety and hey, you are strapping yourself to a you know a rocket. Uh, you know, loaded with, uh, with explosive uh, material. And this is an inherently dangerous uh, endeavor that, that you're taking part in uh, because lots of things can go wrong, obviously, in space. And the environments of space are also very hazardous. People are briefed on, are briefed on, the, uh, on the health, you know, the health impact aspect of it. We simply need to add, repro- you know, reproductive impacts into that brief and into those waivers. People need to understand what they could potentially be getting into, uh, be aware of the dangers, and be able to uh, provide informed consent before they engage in any kind of activity. Where the ethical dilemma comes in is that, uh, and I I feel that we may see a lot of back and forth on this topic as we've seen with, for example, uh, abortion rights in the United States, is that a baby that is conceived in outer space cannot give informed consent, but if there are any detrimental impacts to their physiology, they're the ones that have to grow up with that. So there's a lot of discussion on, you know, from a medical basis, from a philosophical basis, ethics, uh, all of it that needs to still be had. And the conversation needs to be expanded and continued so that we start, uh, as I said, getting these answers and, being able to have a mature conversation about it. Yeah, and, and look, I, I, I want to be very, very clear. Separating the act of sex, not a problem. Don't care. Go wild. Velcro yourself to the wall. I don't care. Bounce off the walls. It's all 
have a great time. But if you are engaging in a sexual act in microgravity that could result in an issue with your child, you're gambling with a child's life. Yes. That is a major issue. And if nothing else, I mean, the legal profession, and as you and I know, lawyers are making so much money off the different parts of these questions in space. And they're going to, I never thought that, you know, space would be paced by the legal profession, but it is happening. You could get sued out of an existence as the operator of one of these facilities, let's say, by the fact that, and, and the PR that turns against you and all of this, because you have created a child um, who may have issues based on the fact that you wanted to be the first to conceive in space. It's a very, very heavy, very, very uh, serious topic. Alex, I'm going to, and we're going to stop there for this part of the topic. Yeah. And <laughs> I, uh, there's so much, man. I, I, I love, you know, and the way I do the show is that it's a conversation I'm learning with you. I may know some stuff about these, the topics I, I bring on here, but um, you're opening my mind. I'm sure you've blown a couple of minds of people who are listening, hopefully some of the right people in some of these facility development companies are going to look at it. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just so much to be discussed here. I mean, you know, do we put a moratorium on it? Yeah. You know, are you, are you able to fly in space only if you can't conceive for the first five years? What do you think yeah, about I, that? I mean, I would, uh, I would not seek to restrict anybody from being able to fly in space if they are healthy enough and able to do it. Uh, cause I wouldn't want that to happen to me. I'm, I know that I'm able to, uh, you know, would be able to, as one half of a, a couple, uh, you know, con conceive a child. Uh, so I wouldn't want that preventing me from, uh, from going into space. Uh, and as far as a moratorium goes, I think a moratorium would be a, a good idea in terms of no deliberate attempts at reproduction. And also there's still yet a lot to be learned about, uh, birth control. Hey, the efficacy of birth control in microgravity environments. Uh, so female astronauts have used birth control in the past to uh, suppress their, their menstrual periods while they're, while they're on missions. Uh, how effective will birth control be in preventing um, fertilization of, of, a, of a zygote and development of you know, the beginning 